a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, we're back with you again. This is Nathan Romas, your host. And uh, today we've got Damien Cordry from Northwest Patrol. Right. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a background on Damien, we worked together when I first came to the Edmonton Police. Uh, I was in patrol downtown. He was one of the sergeants on one of the overlapping squads. So we worked together a little bit. And since then, you've done a bit of a tour in some different divisions and different positions. Yep. You've been a detective at some point. Yes. And you are now a patrol sergeant back in Northwest. Correct. And um, yeah, well, we'll get into the rest of your history, sure. but I'll let you tell that story. So uh, yeah, please, let's start at the beginning. Where, where's Damien come from? <laughs> wow. Not that anyone really cares where I came from. But <laughs> Uh, yeah, originally from Manitoba, a small town in Morden, Manitoba, and born and raised there. Spent, geez, about 19 years of my life uh, in Morden, Manitoba. And uh, got my start with policing in uh, grade 12. Uh, I was making some career choices. I realized that my marks weren't super stellar and maybe couldn't be the Air Force pilot. So I had to rethink things and... Uh, and came up with uh, policing. My grandfather on my dad's side was a police officer in Brantford, Ontario. And, and uh, I mean, I'll be honest, uh, a lot of my passion for policing, it's going to sound corny, but it came from watching cops. Uh, I thought that was pretty <laughs> awesome. I love the action. Um, I love the diversity, you know, different things every day. So, uh, yeah, in grade 12, we had a uh, cooperative education program start up where you could uh, work alongside um, a career choice basically for, uh, for one semester and, and earn some course credits, uh, for grade 12. And so I thought I'd give it a shot, talk to the police chief in my hometown. And, and, uh, that was the start of my policing career. He let me, uh, ride along with them and then, uh, did some special constable work for them after uh, I graduated from high school. And I thought that I would live out my entire life in Morden, Manitoba and work in the small town policing and, and uh, my chief probably said one of the smartest things I've ever, uh, or the best advice I've ever been given. Is, he said, you know what, Damien, I'll hire you, but I want you to go away for a year, go away somewhere else, uh, experience life outside of Morden, and if you come back after that year, I'll, uh, I'll hire you. Mm -hmm. So I went to Lethbridge and uh, took the law enforcement program in Lethbridge, uh, Lethbridge College. And, I mean, Lethbridge isn't a very big city, but coming from a small town of 5,000 people, uh, in Lethbridge, it was a big city for me. Uh, it was an eye-opener. I did some ride-alongs with the Lethbridge police there. And and it made me realize, like, you know what? I don't think I want to do small-town policing for the rest of my life. So uh, I would go back to Morden and do uh, policing in the summertime, uh, just as a special constable. Uh, after I graduated Lethbridge, I got hired on a term basis. Uh, there was a, another small town close to mine, Altona, Manitoba. And they had a member go on sick leave. They needed someone to fill in, so they trained me up. I was a full constable there. Uh, trying to remember how long that lasted. It was at least six months, if not close to a year. And uh, the the member ended up going on long term disability. They offered me the full time position there, and uh, at that point, I realized, no, I can't can't keep doing small town policing. So I 
turned it down and moved to Edmonton, Alberta, and, and uh, knew that whether I was going to end up in Edmonton or not, I needed to go to a big city to to police. And um, luckily enough, I ended up here. Well, when you're in Altona, uh, did they train you themselves, or is there yes. like a school there? Okay. Yeah, so it, it was different because I was a term constable there. So they just did all their in-house training with me, firearms, everything else. Typically in Manitoba, the small towns will either send their members to Brandon or to Winnipeg for, for training. Now I think it's actually everyone goes to Winnipeg. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's because I was just meant to be a term uh, member there, they just did all in-house training. Hmm. Interesting. So how long did you do that? I think it was close to a year. Yeah. Um, maybe just shy of a year. Um, and you know, it was, it was a great experience. I mean, small town policing again, back then too, it was very different. You know, that the, the, the town basically shuts down after mm-hmm. 10 o'clock at night and part of your duties as a constable out there is to walk the downtown strip and check everybody's doors to make sure like all the business doors to make sure that they're locked. Um, whether it's winter or summer and, you know, just little things like that, your ticket, you write a ticket to the wrong person that's influential within the town and the chief pulls your ticket. (laughs) And everybody hears about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was, it was different, but it was fun. It was a good experience and and definitely the start of something for me. So how do you pick Edmonton out of all the cities? Yeah. So that's in and of itself, another long story. Uh, I had met uh, my first wife, uh, in college when I was in Lethbridge. Uh, she was in college in Red Deer and she was from Edmonton. Uh, so mm. when I graduated college from Lethbridge, I went home and, and worked in my, uh, well, my hometown. And then of course in Altona for a while. And she was, she would just kind of commute. We would commute back and forth, um, you know, maybe once a month or every two months to see each other. And finally it was kind of like, okay, we got to do something here. It's, we can't keep commuting. So yeah. That was part of the decision for me to leave, but I think obviously for me the bigger picture was was policing. I just knew I needed to be in a bigger center. So uh, because she was in Edmonton, we moved or I moved to Edmonton and kind of started a life up here. So. Cool. Well, so you get up here, and if you can kind of run us through the training. So how long ago did you go through training? Wow. Well, I was hired March of '99, or I guess I started class in March of '99. Okay. What did that process look like? Is it still the same eight steps or whatever they do today? You know, I don't know about the steps per se. I mean, I know back then it was, it was incredibly competitive. There was a lot of people that wanted to be police officers and, you know, it was, I, I put my application out to everywhere, not just Edmonton. Uh, I remember going to Calgary to write Calgary's exam and we were at a university, I can't remember which university it was down there, or, uh, one of the, the colleges and or in a big theater, I think there was over 500 people there writing and they were accepting 20 spots. Wow. You know, so you sit in that theater and you look at everybody else and you're like, am I better than 500 other people that are here? So it's intimidating mm-hmm. for sure. Um, you know, and I think if uh, back then it was, if you let it, it could be overwhelming. You just kind of had to persevere and, and believe in yourself. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time back then to apply for policing. I wonder what the numbers are now. I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know they are not that, <laughs> yeah. not that competitive. No, it's, it's definitely very different now. Um, you know, I, back then, back then police agencies could sit back and just let people come to them. Uh, you didn't have to recruit, you didn't have to invest time in it. And, you know, people, people will get deferred for everything. Um, mm-hmm. 
and they could afford to back then if they thought, you know, this person's not quite what we're looking for at this point. Let's just kind of put them on the shelf for a year or two and you could afford to do that. And because if you lost that candidate, well, there's 20, well, I say 20, there's probably hundreds of others behind that person um, that can fill that role. So they just, they didn't care. And I had a lot of, I mean, I knew a lot of good people, uh, a lot of good friends that were getting deferred for, again, what we think are dumb reasons. But um, but yeah, you, you watch, you know, you watch them get deferred in one uh, service and another service picks them up, you know, four months later. So Whereas now maybe it's uh, one person gets deferred and you've got 20 services chasing that one person. So sure. they kind of have their pick. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, you can't, yeah, the mar- I guess what's the market or the, mm-hmm. the farm team, so to speak, is a lot thinner than it used to be. So, um, you know, you have to, they look at people now as like, can we work with that? You know, mm-hmm. how bad was that transgression? Can we work with that? Can we get past that? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to see what they will overlook now. And I, I don't think it's bad per se. It's just back in, like, I hate to say, keeps, oh, you'll probably hear this a lot today, back in my day. Um, it just, it wasn't that way. It was, yeah. they would nitpick for everything. Okay. So what did, uh, training look like? Uh, you know, it was, the, it was the good old days of training where, I mean, I, I don't, I can't say for certain it's, it has changed a lot since I, I went through, I think it has, you know, it was, mm-hmm. you're yelled at every day. Um, that's definitely changed a lot then. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, smoking jackets and slippers and hugs for everybody anymore. It's, <laughs> Um, you know, back then you were treated like a piece of garbage and you earned your spot. Right. And, um, I mean, I liked it. I like, it was very paramilitary. Um, you know, they beat you down and, and, and built you back up again and, and made you become, forced you to become a team. Um, you know, and that's, I think, I don't know if that's a lot of other people in this job, but I like that kind of thing. I like, I like that team dynamic. I like, you know, um, I just like that feeling where you just you feel like you're it's not just your team it's your family it's the camaraderie yeah and yeah i would agree i'm more of that type of person the camaraderie is a huge part also like the structure of it Mm -hmm. so when when you just show up and it's kind of willy-nilly hey we're just here it's it's a job uh things like that kind of irk me a bit and yeah it's uh you want people to kind of feel uh feel more for this professional or for this profession but uh yeah it definitely gets spun to just be it's just a job just go do it go home and that's it yeah yeah it's i mean again it was it was a career in that day um and, and not to not to i guess cast out on anybody that applies now i think that there's a lot of diversity in what in what people apply for now some people it is still a career some people it's like hey I'm tired of doing what I'm doing. Let's try this today and see what happens. And, um, you know, so when I applied, it was people went, we were still taking, like in my class, we had people that didn't go to law enforcement or had no law enforcement background. Um, and they were super awesome people and become great cops uh, mm-hmm. within EPS. But, um, you know, it was, it, it felt like back then it was more geared towards, uh, we're trying to find that cookie cutter police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, it just is different dynamic, but, um, uh, I loved it. I loved, um, I loved the beat down. Uh, I liked feeling like I earned something, you know, when you've got through block one, um, 
it was, you really felt like you made it. You were, you started to become someone mm-hmm. uh, and have an identity as a police officer and moving into your first squad, you know, it's uh, same thing. It's you're a, a low guy on the totem pole or girl or whoever um, you're a low person on the totem pole and you have to earn your spot in that squad. And I don't think it wasn't, you know, again, depending on some squads were harder than others. My squad was good. You know, they, they definitely put you in your place and you, you uh, kind of worked your way up the ladder. And I liked that. I like, I like feeling like I earned something. I feel like I earned my spot. So mm-hmm. those are good times for sure. So where did you start and what did that kind of look like back in the day? So you get on the street, you're with your first squad. Where are you? And, uh, you know, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, you know what? I, I started in West Division. Um, I'm a West Edmonton Mall security boy, the alumni. Mm. Um, so there was no doubt I was going back to West. That was uh, my home ice. Um, so I went, uh, I definitely wanted to go back to West. Uh, I had an amazing crew. Uh, and again, back then it was really senior. We had like, I think two or three people on my squad that uh, were over 15 years experience. Um, I mean, I think the number of people on my squad under five years was probably three of us. Wow. Uh, so there was a lot of seniority back then. My PTO, my primary PTO was a 20-year member. My secondary PTO, I think, was a 10-year member. Um, so it was amazing. It was a good mix of, of learning from different styles from two different PTOs. And, uh, I mean, back then it was... Uh, Caprice Classics and Ford Crown Vicks. Uh, when I started, we had gray shirts before we switched to black. Um, yeah, you know, they, it was, again, just different. We started with the MDTs, so the original MDTs that were probably, geez, I don't even know how to do like the size of a beer can maybe. Um, so and had MDT for every, anyone who doesn't know would be your in-car computer. Yeah, and extremely limited. Like we're talking DOS matrix type crap like it was very basic you typed in a, a specific letter and hit enter and that would give you a, a different screen and i mean today's day and age of of mapping systems and you know the the way that the call is presented to you it's amazing it's light years ahead of where we started oh and the computer shut down you know uh cpic's not working or epros isn't working uh, you can't do a whole lot of functions you can still do the basic job but you're missing out on a a lot of other functions as uh, the day-to-day officer that's for sure oh for sure for sure it was uh yeah like i said it was extremely basic um technology we didn't even have cell phones back then uh we would use our radios had the phone function on them so if you had to call a complainant you called them on your radio um i think i think i had a pager when i started um (laughs) So yeah, it, but there was no such thing as as police service cell phones. I think I don't I don't think I got a cell phone from EPS until I think until I started in Dust, and then I had one in Beats. But there were it was specific areas that you would get a cell phone. And, well, we'll have to have you back to uh, we'll just do a history of technology, with Damien. <laughs> we yeah. go through all the different technologies change over the years. It's actually been pretty quick, right? So through the 90s and the 2000s, just the explosion of computers and it's completely changed everything, every yeah. career. So. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so yeah, you go from patrol and then what does your career path kind of look like from there? You know, when I started, I was, 
uh, I was big into the gangs and drugs and stuff like that. I just really fascinated uh, me. So I spent, I would spend tons of time up on the third floor in HQ. I would study, study the walls of gang pictures and especially coming from West Ed. I had a, a you know, a good understanding of who's who uh, that was coming to the mall. A lot of the gang members loved coming to West Ed uh, to hang out and go to the bars. Uh, so that carried over when I started in West Division. I'd spend a lot of time studying that, um, you know, crafting uh, a bit of the skill of informants. Again, very different source handling back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, for me, it was all about trying to, um, I guess, build build sources, build warrants. Uh, I wanted to, my career path was targeted for special projects team. And then, you know, I wanted to go to Edge. I wanted to go to Dust, uh, all those things. So... Um, that's kind of where I really focused on. And I had a really good Sergeant Billy Kerr that, um, was an amazing proactive Sergeant. That guy was, uh, I guess if I don't swear, it's a poop magnet. Like he, he could find everything like the guy that you can swear. (laughs) (laughs) We're all adults. It's crime would just seem to fall in his lap. It was pretty impressive. And so, you know, you just, you watch what he did and kind of emulate his work and, um, you know, you work hard and, and try and get rewarded for it. So mm-hmm. ultimately, eventually I got, uh, I got a selection for the project team, did some time in project team. And, uh, from there, let's see, project team. I think I went, I think I went to Beats after that. Yeah, I think it was Beats, uh, West Edmonton Mall Beats, which was great to get back there mm-hmm. again. Um, and the, in the process of doing that crossover, I, you know, I, obviously I had the surveillance course, was able to get the UC course finally and uh, get my undercover status and uh, started working towards uh, going full-time in dust. And once you were there, uh, how long did you spend in that unit? In where, in dust? Yeah. Uh, I ended up doing two, uh, two, what do you want to call it, secondments or terms in dust. Uh, so the first, first time I went into dust, um, I'd actually, I was involved in an officer involved shooting while I was on beats. Um, and because of gang threats against me, they had to move me off the street, kind of, uh, less, I guess, public uh, mm-hmm. environment, uh, less of a target. So, uh, luckily I had taken the UC course probably, you know, I think it was a few months before that. So I was able to secure a spot in dust. I think I did about four months. Uh, in dust while they kind of just waited for the the heat to come off me and things to die down and then I went back to uh, back to beats finished my term in beats and was able to get a full-time spot in dust for about a I think I was there for about a year because now they have roughly like they have a a tenure right I think they still do yeah yeah they always had a tenure um I think it used to be a couple years two years yeah and I'm not sure what it is now I think it's three maybe four Mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, so one of the things we wanted to talk about was the officer-involved shooting. And uh, I'm guessing everything's done with that. Yes, the, oh yeah, long, long time ago. Yeah, inquiries and court yeah. process, everything's all good. Yep. So um, can you kind of run us through, maybe if we go back to the beginning of that and just tell us about the event and then run us through that day? Sure, yeah. Um. Yeah, like I, I'll start at the beginning of that day. It was it was a quiet day in Beats. Um, I, it must have been close to the weekend because I know I was going to Calgary that uh, that evening after I finished work, and it was super quiet. Uh, radio was was dead. There was not a lot of chatter, no calls on the board, and 
Yeah. Oddly enough, uh, I've said this a few times, oddly enough that day I thought to myself, you know, it's a dead day like this, that it's going to be one of those times where someone's just going to sporadically get on the air and call a 1013. Like it's just, I feel like it's just a weird day today. Uh, so I, that was kind of interesting. I remember thinking that at the beginning of the day. And anyways, I, I was heading downtown to, uh, to run an errand. I had to pick something up or drop something off at HQ. And then that was probably the last thing I was going to do for the day, head back to Beats uh, West Ed and, and pack up. And, um, yeah, so I remember I jumped in the car. I hadn't even logged on. Uh, so I jumped in the car and I was just going downtown. I was on 142th Street. Um, I can't remember what Ave. It was like a T intersection. I'm going to say it was like maybe 109 Avenue. And a Sunfire in front of me went through a red light at the T intersection. And I didn't really care, but I'm like, you're an idiot. There's a police, mm-hmm. Mark Police Officer right behind you. Like, you don't blow a red light. So oh, I'm just going to pull him over, give him a good finger wag, send him on his way. And move on with my day. Uh, and so for those of you at that time, I, again, I, I lose track of my times and what year this was. I'm going to say it was probably back maybe like 2003. Um, back then, Sunfires were a commonly stolen car along with neons, Dodge neons. And anyways, I didn't think anything of it. It was during the day, lit it up, and uh, it's not pulling over. And I thought, oh, shit, like I'm not even logged on. I'm mm-hmm. getting a chase now. Um Hadn't run the plate. I just figured, okay, Sunfire not sto- are not stopping. It's going to be stolen. Uh, so that started off. Um, I started calling it in. Uh, hey, I'm not logged on, but I'm in a pursuit. And so they quickly logged me on. And by that point, he started speeding up. There's two people in the vehicle. And we ended up heading up to about 111th Street, or sorry, 111th Avenue, and, and started heading downtown, east into downtown. And uh, as they made the turn on 111 out from 142, uh, they, the driver and the passenger started switching seats. Uh, so the female took over driving and she kept going. And we got all the way to 124th Street before they did a little bit of a loop through a parking lot, started coming back uh, west uh, on 111 Avenue. Uh, and so we're coming down on 111. I think a dog car is with me now and Air One's on the way. Uh, I think Air One manages to pick it up around... 156 and the 111 Ave. So we back off uh, and they get down onto Stony Plain Road. Um, and they, with no pressure, no police pressure behind them, they start going the wrong way on 100th Ave by the police station, heading toward westbound towards 170th Street. And I figure this has got to be, it's got to be around two o'clock in the afternoon. And you're, so, you're by yourself? Uh, yes. Yeah. I'm solo today or that day. Um, so, yeah, so I, I started uh, positioning myself. Um, I, I'm going west, kind of paralleling on Stony Plain. And this uh, suspect vehicle ends up going the wrong way now on 170th Street, uh, northbound on the southbound lanes. So I just took a proactive position on that one. I was just going to ram it head on. So I kind of stiff-armed the steering wheel, put my foot on the floor, and just kind of braced myself for impact. And I could see... As they're approaching, she's the female still driving. They're both kind of wide-eyed looking at me, and she she jerked the wheel at the last second and goes around me. So continues on. They start going west out of town on Stony Plain Road, and, you know, it was the old proverbial uh, daisy chain that's out there where mm-hmm. everyone's chasing the tail and no one's kind of moving ahead. So unfortunately, we chase it down, uh, I think it was Winterburn Road, all the way down to White Mud, uh, 
long story short, we get it kind of cornered into, uh, boy, that's Collingwood Mall area there. Mm. Um, All those shops, like a Safeway and stuff like that. We tried to pin it into the parking lot and it didn't work. Comes to, comes to a stop um, at a sidewalk on like, I'm going to say it's maybe 62, no, not 62, 64 Avenue, 64 and 172. And uh, so it just kind of rolls up to the sidewalk. So we're all thinking, okay, this guy's given up finally. We're going to start pinching it in here. And as we approach it with the vehicles, he gets up onto the sidewalk and starts going south down the sidewalk. So he's driving on the sidewalk southbound. There's a fence to his right, um, 172th Street on his left. So... Uh, one of the cars, one of the police cars goes in behind him to kind of chase him down the sidewalk. Another car is paralleling him on the streets. They've kind of got him pinched in a little bit anyways, or um, hemmed in. And there is a uh, driveway for condo complex he's approaching. So I figure, okay, I'll shoot ahead, parallel, and just basically tee off and let him hit my car or block him in. So I did that. I, I blocked that driveway. He drove into the back end of my car, kind of stopped. Um, I'm looking out my window. I can see cops approaching the driver and, uh, he's not complying and I can feel, um, like he tried to, I could feel a little bit of a rev of the gas, like pushing, tried to push the back end of my car. So I threw it in park, jumped out of my car and I'd say half of his car was up against my bumper. The other half was, um, free space. Basically the driver's side was free space. So I just stood right in front of that spot, drew my pistol and, uh, aimed right at the driver. So I'm looking at my sights uh, oh, at his face. He's looking at me. And as I leveled my pistol on him, he just floors it. I can see uh, two members standing at the driver's side. So they've kind of got him pinched in in a V. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to push my vehicle and, and move towards the street away from the vehicle. So I break free from the, the pinch. And as he's doing that, he's starting to kind of pinch in the two members now that are standing at his door. Uh, I can see my vehicle start to slide uh, from him pushing it. Uh, so I just start sidestepping to the passenger side to try and make sure I'm not going to get run over. And, and uh, I can see that that pinch is getting closer and closer for the members that are at his door. So um, I still had good line of sight uh, and I started shooting. Um, put, I think there was two rounds. You can see, uh, at least I saw from the pictures anyways, two rounds in the corner of the uh, the windshield on the driver's side, and both went into him. One into the kind of the windshield kind of diverted them, so one went high, one went low, got shot, and then upper shoulder. And as I fired the third shot, he managed to break free from uh, from the vehicle, and so my shot actually went into the door. So I should say now that they had switched again, right? So the guy was driving, mm-hmm. and she wasn't. She was in the passenger seat. She had put her feet up on the dash, so when my round penetrated high door. Um, on the passenger side, it went through both of her knees. Uh, mm. kneecap in the passenger there. Uh, the window blew out. I actually, and she fell over into his lap. I actually thought I'd shot her because I wasn't sure where that third shot had actually gone. Uh, and I thought I had shot her in the head and killed her. Uh, so they broke free. They went, uh, he got about half a block and I think she kind of rolled out of the vehicle. Um, and then he went up there's a shell station just in the corner of 172 and 69 there and, and kind of veered into the shell station and hit some beautiful brand new Mercedes that was coming out. Um, and that was the end of him. He just gave up from there. So they, they arrested him and 
took him to the hospital and yeah, he, he uh, from what I hear, I have connections in the hospital there. I guess he flatlined a couple of times on, on the operating table and the doctors were able to bring him back. So he, uh, I think I ended up taking out a bunch of his intestines and his gut and stuff, but uh, turned out to be a good red alert gang member, uh, carrying a bunch of drugs, had a bunch of warrants. And because of that shooting, then, of course, obviously, a bunch of threats uh, made against me from the Red Alert. And so, you know, you go through the whole uh, rigmarole of having Tactical come out to your neighborhood and do tactical plans in your neighbor's houses, like sniper positions and things like that. Luckily, I had some really good neighbors. But um, Yeah, so I had to carry my gun off duty for a while. And, um, yeah, I just kind of lay low, and that's where they moved me into dust for my first round there. But it was it was definitely a... You know, I've, I've talked to, I guess, I've had a couple of teams throughout my tenure as a police uh, sergeant. And, and I talked to the, the young members about it. Because it's, it's an impactful, it's probably one of the biggest impacts on my career uh, mm-hmm. that I can remember. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people go through it. So you try and impart some, some of what you went through and, and how you felt um, when it happened. And it's, it's, I mean, everyone reacts in a different ways. So I'm not going to say that my reaction is going to be how anybody reacts, but I think it's, it's overwhelming for sure. Um, sorry, it, go ahead. Oh, as I was gonna say, is the process now, so you'll have court, you'll have professional standards involved. Then you'll also have uh, the families involved uh, at the uh, fatality inquiry mm-hmm. that comes later on in the process. Was it all kind of the same at that time as well? Yeah, you know what? Again, um, I was lucky in the sense that uh, the two that I shot did not um, succumb to their injuries, so I didn't have to go through a fatality inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a EPA rep come out right away and uh, take me in their car. Of course, your gun gets seized right away mm-hmm. um, by the OSM that's out there. Uh, I had an EPA rep come pick me up right away take me back to the station to get changed and head to HQ where you're going to meet with, um, you know, usually it's the EPA VP or president that comes down and whatever lawyer they assign to you. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting, an interesting feeling in the sense that, you know, even back then police shootings were, I, I were obviously highly scrutinized, but I think that, not to the same level that they are now. Um, and when I say that, it's not the scrutiny within the service or ACERT or things like that. I think it's the uh, social media scrutiny. So, you know, I, I tried not to watch the news after mine happened, but obviously uh, there's always, there's going to, the, the news people try and find one. They try to find the one person that's, you know, says you were a cowboy or were, mm-hmm. Well, there was one, per- like, it was some one person that said I was shooting towards a school ground full of children and things like that. And it didn't actually happen, but you know what? News sells, right? So they want some kind of controversy or danger or things like that. Um, you know, special interest groups um, definitely want to speak up about how we're all gun crazy and things like that. So again, we didn't have it as much um, at my time. So, um, but I look at what I went through and I can only imagine how much that's magnified now um, to have to go through that. It's, uh, you know, I, I try to try to tell people that it's not a, it, it's not about, you know, blowing the smoke off of the mm-hmm. barrel of the gun and twirl it back into your holster and high five and everybody. And what a great shoot that was. It's, uh, I'll be honest with you. I went into shock. 
like you know I had the shakes going there like it's it's something you practice for it and, and think about it a lot you know how am I going to react what am I going to do in situations like this and when it happens it's pretty overwhelming all the adrenaline dump sure. and all the other stuff that's been going on you don't know like you said you don't know uh just because of the reaction of the girl in the car it's like well I wasn't intending to shoot her but the way she's moving maybe I did hit her so now you're kind of worried about that part of it and yeah it there's a lot going on I think people don't realize that uh you know those split second decisions you have to make a choice to save somebody's life so you're going to save two officers lives and make sure they don't get run over or crushed uh, by a car and maybe that involves taking one other person's life so it's kind of the realities of the world realities of the job yeah for sure for sure, you know, and I, I felt good about what I had done uh, in the sense that I felt like I was justified. I kind of ran, I ran through the steps a hundred times in my mind. Um, and because you obviously going to second guess yourself, but you know what's coming. You know mm-hmm. that everybody else is going to second guess your decision and they get to sit back over the next couple of weeks and think about what you may have done better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nerve wracking that way. It's nerve wracking to think that maybe I'll get charged. Maybe they don't see it my way. Maybe I get charged with something, right? So it's, and, and I feel like, again, that was back then. Um, and and I, I see a magnification of that in today's day. Well, I guess back then it would have, if social media wasn't such a big uh, part of all the, the shootings that might have happened, it was your peers you were more worried about, right? The second guessing, the... Uh, uh, all the after the fact, but now I social media is. I was still worried. It would, back then, it was just the uh, the news media, right? The the traditional media. So mm-hmm. I wasn't really worried about my peers not seeing it my way um, and, and understanding what I had done. Um, although you, you know, again, you you see things, and everybody sees things from a different angle and different perspective. So there, it's possible somebody may have seen something different that you know would question why I would do it. Um, but for me, it was always the media scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll never get away from traditional media scrutinizing the police. And that I don't think that has changed over the years. Um, so for me, the, the biggest concern was, is, you know, how does this get portrayed in the media? And do I become a scapegoat for something? Um, so, I mean, that has, that has never changed over the, the time that I've been a police officer. You're always wondering about whether you're going to be convicted in the court of public opinion. I just think it's now it's more magnified in with the use of social media. Traditional media did a bang up job hanging us <laughs> in the past, um, but I think you got to be more concerned now about social media and, and how people crucify you in that. I think that uh, well, you're 100. percent You're right, and from what I've seen in my own experiences, uh, you get a lot more hesitation out there now because people don't they second guess their decisions and they don't want that criticism and they don't want to have to deal with all the aftermath. So, you know, if, if you're involved in a shooting, you're looking at five years of, uh, interviews and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, conduct reviews. And, and if it ends up in a fatality, now you're going to court for that as well. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of pressure on one person. For sure. It's, Again, it's it's a, a lot of stress. Um, you know, your your spouse. You don't even think about. Um, I was uh, I think I was engaged at the time, or at least I had a girlfriend that lived with me at the time, and 
you don't think about how they're going to react to it. I mean, it's it's overwhelming for them. It's and so you're you're so busy processing your own shit from from a, a really volatile situation and and a, could potentially be a career changing uh, event that you you forget about the people around you and how it affects them. So, yeah, I just I try to impress upon people that it's you know you don't have to be the bravado a tough cop. Like if, mm-hmm. if it hits you, it hits you. It's okay and just. You know, make sure you ask for help. Talk to people about it, obviously, when you can. Um, uh, you know, you got to get your statements and things done like that. But that in the service, I think, has come a long way um, in trying to provide you the psychological help that you're going to need while still managing the whole um, criminal aspect of it, right? You, you know, with, the, um, I guess, the constraints around who you can talk to until things are, are done. But they try to keep it fairly streamlined so you can get the help you need. And, so I will, you know, I'm not going to sit here and toot the service's horn all the time, but I think that um, certainly they, they do a decent job, and so does the EPA, to make sure that members' needs are looked after while trying to manage policy and procedure. Was it the same back then as it is now with respect to how they handle, uh, or care, I should say, care for the members after a, a major event like that? So did they have EFAS uh, or any other programs in place? You know, th- th- we did have EFAS. We had some programs. No one, I think we've we've advanced over the years and, and we've, um, you know, I, now I think we have the whole uh, reintegration you would go through before you go back to the street. We didn't have that uh, back then. It was basically, you took some time off. However much time you needed, you could take the time off. They give it to you and you come back. You Before you can come back, you got to uh, go see a psychologist. And I mean, really how hard is it to kind of say the right things and check the boxes to get back to work mm. so you know I, no system is perfect i think that back then it was all right um but i think we've come farther this uh, in today's day and age to really make sure that the member is 100 percent before putting them back in that situation yeah yeah because in i mean just even outside of shootings it's uh or us as police taking an overt action to to solve a situation just walking into some situations, you see things that are uh, god awful and horrendous uh, things going on out there that the general public has no clue about. None. Yeah. And I mean, those things can be just as traumatic and set you off just as much as taking an action yourself. But uh, seeing the actions of other people is uh, probably some of the the worst things I've experienced on this job. So yeah, for sure they. Uh... You know, this job is a, is a tough job and you see a lot of things that nobody else would ever see or ever want to see. Um, and so you, the way we used to deal with things, and I think to some degree we still do, is we bury it deep inside. We don't talk about it. You have a couple of drinks every now and then to calm your nerves and, and you keep going on with life. But you can only bury that shit for so long before it starts to bubble up to the top and mm-hmm. starts to affect your, your personal life and your career and so yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's I've always been a big advocate for mental health. I shouldn't say I've always been. Um, let me put it to you this way: it's I think we all have we all have gone through our our moments where we stigmatize uh, people with mental health. We look at them like a broken toy, or I don't want to work with that person because you know they were off on LTD for a while and they're a loony or something like that. You know, we've we've I'm I mean, I would suggest that there's a large part of us that have said something like that whether it's in our head or whatever else 
And I'll be the first to admit I had that when I started on the job. I was your type A personality cop. And if you're not tough, you're weak um, and you shouldn't be here. Yeah. And so I, I had that. I had uh, a sergeant in the West Division that had come back from mental health leave and thought to myself, oh, man, what's that guy doing here? Like, is he safe to work with? And yeah. So it's, you know, I, I don't, um, it's good to recognize that in ourselves. Um, be honest with yourself if we're saying something like you know, again in your head or whatever else if you're feeling that way it's good to recognize that and understand that you know it's it's easy to say you're the tough person until it happens to you and then I think sometimes until it happens to us individually you just don't really understand what it's all about what the person goes through um, the road the steps they have to take to come back and, and feel like they can be a productive member again and, and want other people to look at them like that too. Well, I think you can look at mental health as, uh, you know, you have the mental side of things, you have the physical side. Uh, it's just the physical, um, maybe it's just being human beings. You know, we use our eyes for 90% of what we do. So if I can see, you know, okay, this person doesn't have an arm, they don't have a leg. Well, I could even imitate that and not use that arm for a day, but I can, uh, I can see it. I can understand it. Yeah. But when it's something inside, it's very hard to identify with that and to even imagine what it's like to walk around with that. Mm -hmm. That would be my perception. For sure. Because, I mean, you can, as a person struggling with mental health, you can look like a quote-unquote normal person, right? I can walk around smiling and joking with people. So you don't see the injury that they're actually dealing with as opposed to, you know, I've got a sprained ankle, my foot's wrapped, or I'm on crutches, right? So you're like, oh, yeah, well, that person must be hurt because they're on crutches. Um, but when you don't see the injury, it's like, well, what a faker. Like, they're, mm -hmm. they're happy, they're go-lucky. Like, they're just enjoying the free time that the service is giving them and what a rip-off kind of thing. So, yeah, definitely. Um, and I don't know how much, I guess, you know, all you ever hear about is the physical science of things and, and how people deal with, you know, uh, limbs missing and, or you can take medication for something and you can see the results of it, but how do you deal with mental health and how much do we actually know about it? Yeah. So I think a lot of those questions are still kind of left unanswered. And it also makes it harder for people to understand. So uh, one thing I did want to kind of talk about too was your undercover career. Yep. Uh, as much as you can talk about it, I don't know, you know, you be the judge of what you can tell, but I think that's um, a very interesting topic that most of the public and even other police officers, they don't get to experience this. So tell us uh, what's it like to get into undercover work and then maybe kind of run us through some of the work that you have done. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll preface this by saying I'm, I am not a UC expert. I wouldn't put myself in the top 10 of the best UCs out there. I've worked with some of the best UCs out there and there are some great ones for sure in our service. And I learned a lot from them. I love to sit back and watch them do it. Um, so yeah, anyone listening, thinking that I'm talking from a place of authority, I'm just simply giving you my experience personally, but I am by no means an expert. Um, it was a cool opportunity, uh, for sure. Going through the, the UC course just to, to apply, you had to go through testing, and the testing in itself was, was pretty crazy with scenarios. And I won't get into the scenarios because I think they still use some similar <coughs> things to this, to this day, but 
Um, but yeah, so you'd go through the testing with scenarios and, and even to this day, I mean, it's, it's like the surveillance course. You're getting, you know, 100 people applying for 20 spots on a course, right? So uh, it's tough competition. So it, again, it felt like an accomplishment to, to get there, which was great. Uh, the UC course was a blast. Um, you know, the, the, it was one of the toughest core. In fact, I would suggest it's the toughest course out there mentally. Um, it's exhausting. Uh, you work, I, things have changed over the years. Um, uh, I, I'm not super familiar with the way they run things now. I just remember the way things used to be. And it was interesting. They'd make you do some crazy shit. Um, but it was all, all to put you in a place where you didn't feel comfortable. Right. It's um, that's everything that about UC work is that you're you're usually well, nine times out of 10, you're in a position where you're not normally used to being and you need to make it feel like it's normal or look like it's normal. You're around people that you don't normally hang out with sure. in a place you probably wouldn't want to be. be caught dead. Yeah. <laughs> doing yeah. things that you probably don't want to tell anybody. Sure. About. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Uh, I would suggest that, at least in my day, that if you had any experience buying or selling drugs before you became a cop, you probably weren't <laughs> going to become a cop. So, um, but yeah, so it was it was a pretty awesome experience. Um, the amount of knowledge and the course instructors that were on uh, on that course was amazing. The things they would ask you to do, you asked yourself, like, can I actually do that? Can I get someone to say this or to give me that? And um, so it was good. It really tested you. Uh, and it was an accomplishment to, to get through that and, and uh, to pass it. Not everybody passes. It's one of those courses that you either perform or you don't. And mm -hmm. if you don't, you fall short and sorry, you're not certified. So it felt good to, to be certified. It felt good to have an opportunity to use those skills. Um, after my shooting, I was able to go and do a secondment with them. And I got to do some amazing things. You know, I was involved in a Mr. Big scenario. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I think that I like to think that I developed my character enough that they used me more than they anticipated using me. Um, Can you kind of tell us, uh, and anyone listening, what exactly is a Mr. Big? Give us kind of a, a short uh, version of what that might be. Yeah. So, I mean, you're basically, you're posing as, um, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, an organized crime family or a, a crime family, right? So you're, you want to basically take your your target and involve them into your family or make them want to become a part of your family. And ultimately, the goal is to uh, garner a successful uh, confession out of them in order to be a part of the family. And you're doing scenarios with them to kind of build that um build their reality, build their comfort level with you and, and make mm -hmm. them believe that you are who you are. So, And I'll, I'll add in as well, uh, these aren't things that are super big secrets or anything. These are in books. Yeah. <laughs> these terms are in books. So you can read about it. Yeah, it's on the news. <laughs> so before anybody gets all worked up. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that's, I mean, it, it was it was a cool um, opportunity. I mean, a lot of the work you do in Dust was, um, you know, dial dopers and things like that. And it was it was a lot of fun. So to do something different, um, a little more character development and things like that. And you had to elicit certain things in certain scenarios. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I had, I had a boss at the time in dust that I uh, absolutely adored. Um, it was, it was intense. Uh, the demands in that job at, for that boss. And again, I, I loved that boss. I'm not going to name any names, but I loved that boss. <laughs> um, and, you know, his big thing was you got your dust cell phone from him and he told you if, if I ever call you and you don't pick up, 
uh, you can turn your phone in the next day you're done. Really? So, you know, that phone stayed on full, uh, uh, full volume next to my bed. So I, I never wanted to miss a call. I took it into the gym with me and like that because I, I just, if I missed a call, I'm like, uh, I'm not, I'm not turning this phone in. So, uh, you know, he had this really quirky thing. It was a lot of fun actually. And I, and I, I think the, un- the understanding behind it was is to, uh, to get you focused on something else as you, you make your call to a drug dealer, you're going to go meet them. And, and uh, he would give you uh, this obscure sentence that you had to work into the conversation mm-hmm. when you were buying dro- uh, drugs. So I've heard about this. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and, but he wouldn't tell you. So it's oddly enough, you would, you would drive and it's, just before you were getting to the meet point, he would call you and tell you what it was. You couldn't even think about it or plan it. It was just basically, okay, here's the sentence. You got to work it in. And uh, it was it was fun. You know, it actually kind of, it took, even though there's a lot of things you have to remember and processes you have to go through when you're involved in those types of scenarios, um, I think it kind of helped calm me a little bit because you're so focused on how the hell am I going to work this stupid sentence into the conversation, so... Yeah, it was it was fun, but I enjoyed that time for sure. Um, you know, I think if we did, I'm trying to think. That was only just the scenario, the, the Mr. Big, and then the drug buying that we did at that time. And then I went back to Beats, uh, did some time, some more time in Beats, and then applied for a full time spot in Dust, and was successful. And I don't know if that was like maybe almost a year later, I think. So when you're in there, are you traveling interprovincial? Can you go anywhere or is it just kind of local? Local for the most part. Like, and, you know, dust has gone back and forth. It was, you know, a joint with the RCMP and then it was us and then back and forth. And when I got there, it was just us. The RCMP weren't working with us anymore. Uh, so we weren't, we weren't going out around the province. It was pretty much inside the city unless there was something that they needed us to help them with. But uh, it was pretty much within Edmonton or like the, just the outskirts. What's the, uh, since we're talking a lot about mental health today, what is the, what is the mental or the mentality like when you're in there? So you're, you're in the middle of a scenario or like an actual, you're buying from somebody that, you know, uh, most drug dealers are going to have some sort of weapon within arm's reach. Uh, and, you know, what is kind of the, what's going through your head at that time and how stressful is it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I think that when I was in there, I didn't really think about that. Uh, you know, I think back on it now and I think, man, that's a young person's game. If you don't, you know, it's when you don't have a family, I didn't have a family back then. I had a girlfriend. So, um, I felt like my responsibilities were pretty minimal. And so you just, you're having so much, fun doing that job you've heard about during the course you hear about all the this the senior members that would come in and talk to you about how how things were when they did uc work and uh you know the, the different highlights and lowlights and things they had to go through and so you're just your biggest thing is and, and used to be a saying in there too is just don't fuck it up mm-hmm. um so you didn't want to fuck it up like i don't want to be that one person that does the one thing that everyone's like i can't no one else has done that. How did you fuck that up? So, um, so the, the pressure to perform was great. Um, but I did not feel, you know, I, I would suggest we were in danger every time for sure. And I'm sure they are, it's even more so now. Um, 
but you just, for me personally, I didn't think about it. I was so focused on doing the job that um, didn't really think about the danger part of it. Have you ever been kidnapped or had anything crazy happen to you doing this? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've talked about it a couple of times. Uh, doing, I never did like doing houses. Um, houses were are extremely difficult to control the environment. Um, but we did a house uh, downtown, or I guess on the border of northeast or downtown back in the day. Uh, it was a gang house. Uh, there was, you know, a, obviously I don't, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but it was some of the prep and stuff maybe was lacking a little bit on who we were actually going to see and what we were doing there, who was going to be there. <clears throat> but regardless, we went and did it. And, and I think this is probably, I had only done a, maybe a handful of houses before this. Um, and so I got to that house and, uh, was by myself, rode up on a bike into the backyard and went to the door and a female answered the door and, you know, it starts quizzing you on your story. And I, I think I had, if I remember correctly, this the story we had was pretty decent, should work. Uh, so she brought me inside to the landing, uh, and then she took me to the kitchen. So as she, so can picture it a little bit i guess you walk into this landing and you it's a small area um so if i'm walking the main door to my left is a doorway like there's two stairs going up to a doorway to the kitchen and then if you go right it kind of button hooks around the corner and goes downstairs it's like a, a little split level yeah kind of okay uh so she took me into the kitchen uh and as we went like before we went to the kitchen she had put this big railway tie uh, up against the door so there was like a little pony wall right in front of the door. And so they would butt that railway tie with the pony wall up against the, the doorway. Okay. Yeah. That prevents anyone from kicking it in or yeah. ramming the door. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely fortifying. Uh, it's mm -hmm. the first time I'd been in a fortified house and, uh, you know, we had heard it, it was back on the course. The, the senior UC guys would talk about, sorry, I said guys, UC people, uh, would talk about doing, there's a lot of fortified houses back in that day and they would do a lot of those things. They had some wild, wild stories about fortified houses. Uh, so this was my first fortified house and I wasn't super comfortable with, but I thought, okay, well, this is just right of passage. It's my time to do a fortified house. So, so yeah, I went, uh, went into the kitchen and uh, she sat me down at the kitchen table, which was basically right on the other side of that, that doorway. She goes downstairs she comes back up and I, she came up with what I'm going to say was, I'm trying to remember, this was a long time ago, but I, I want to say six, I think there was six of them in total hmm. uh, that sat at the, at the kitchen table, kind of in a circle around me. Um, and I had been made aware of my primary target. I'd seen a picture and the main guy was definitely the primary target that I'd seen a picture for. Uh, they were all, you could tell they were all high. And, uh, they were all grilling me about the story. And uh, it was, I remember that day was rainy and kind of cold. So I already had a shiver, but things just, it was not an overly comfortable situation. Uh, so they were pressing me on my story. Um, and, you, you know, when they're high, it's, it's hard to really kind of reason with anyone or mm -hmm. think like, oh yeah, what I'm telling you is the truth. Uh, so I just remember it was, it was not, it wasn't going bad, but it wasn't going great. Um, they ended up selling, so they sold me crack, uh, and then they wanted me to piece off with them, uh, basically break a piece off of what I just uh, bought from them, and then we're all going to share it. Uh, so 
again, uh, I had, uh, I don't know how much I can say on, on this, but I had basically gone through the process of, um, quote unquote, smoking in front of them. Um, and some of them wanted to believe that I was smoking. Some of them didn't. Uh, it was an interesting conundrum. They were arguing amongst themselves. They were so high. And, um, so at one point I get a call from my, uh, cover manager because I've been in there for a while now and they're trying to figure out what's taking me so long. So, um, you know, in hindsight, one of the things I was told was I could have made a comment and I didn't, uh, I totally recognize that. I didn't make a comment about the barricade at the door. Um, cause then at least they would have been aware that the, the house was fortified. Um, so anyways, my cover manager called me and was kind of asking me how, how things are going, what's going mm-hmm. on in there. And so you're doing your typical, you know, talking to your old lady or whatever else, just trying to like give them code to say, okay, everything's okay. So I kind of placated my cover manager. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm sure I can get through this. This is, it's gotta be over soon. Uh, so they started passing around what I thought was a cigarette. Um, and so I thought, oh, great. I smoked cigarettes back then. I mean, working UC, we were smoking. Well, at least I was. I was smoking all the time because it's the one way you feel like you can fit in with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, it wasn't a cigarette. As I put it to my face, I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is not going to go well. So, um, I mean, it's... It is what it is. Like I, he basically, as I'm bringing it up to my face, the target main target comes and slides right in up to my face and basically says, I want to watch you inhale it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was definitely, a, well, what I suspect was marijuana. It smelled like marijuana where there's anything else in there. I don't think there was because I don't think I had any adverse reactions, but um, yeah, it's, you know, one of those situations where I felt personally that I, that I had no choice. Like if I'm going to, either do this or I'm going to get my ass kicked here. So, uh, so yeah, so I took a big drag off of the joint and passed over that made him happy. And, um, they were still grilling me. Um, it was hard. Like I, I had the crack already. Uh, they were still kind of going on about how they wanted me to share it. And I'm trying to story off why I can't, like, I just want to go back and see my old lady. She's who sent me here, all that kind of crap. Right. So, um, yeah, so it was, it was still going on. And I get another call uh, from my cover manager. So my, I'm wearing a hoodie and my phone's in the pouch of my hoodie. And I go to reach for it and the main target spins and reaches for his hip, uh, like making it look like he had a gun. Uh, and I panicked. Like I was like, holy shit. Uh, so, I, you know, I kind of put my hands up. I said, hey, whoa, like fucking relax. It's just probably my old lady calling me again. He kind of just laughed. And obviously I couldn't see if he had one, but just mm-hmm. that that indication of maybe. And I, I had no idea who this guy was. So, um, that unnerved me a little bit for sure. Uh, so, you know, I, I found that in your head, you're going through of the idea of, okay, I've heard about these barricaded houses before. And, you know, how can I be the only one not to get out of here? Right. Everyone else got out and they went through some scary shit. So how come, like, obviously I got to get myself out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're thinking to yourself as you're surrounded by six stoned idiots, uh, how do I get myself out of this? And how do I, even if I was to make a break for the door, can I unbarricade the door before they pile on me and kick the shit out of me? So um, it was quite an internal battle, <laughs> to say the least. Um, part of me wanted to call a 1013. 
Uh, again, give the code word for a 1013. And part of me was just like, you can't, you can't be the pussy that called no one else. I've never heard of anybody else in the history of dust calling a 1013. You cannot be the first one. Right. So we go back to the whole bravado thing of, mm -hmm. I will not be the weak one that fucks mm -hmm. it up. Right. So, um, so anyways, I got the call. I got to answer the call. He kind of just laughed at me, um, the target as he lets me answer the call. And, and, uh, so my cover manager asked me basically point blank, he's like, are you coming out? And I said, I don't know. And he says, what do you mean? You don't know. He says, I don't know. And so I'm trying to work this into the conversation. So it's not, you know, just out of the blue, but, uh, I think I can't remember if I said the code for the 1013 or he asked me, I think he asked me if, no, 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 I did say that. And mm -hmm. I said the code because then he asked me, are you sure? And my first thought was, shit, am I sure? Like, mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to be the first one that does this, right? I don't want to be known as the guy that didn't, you know, that couldn't get out of the house. Um, so I just said, you know what? No, uh, I'm fine. Uh, I can't remember how I worked into the conversation, but I just, you know, hey, baby, I'll be home soon. Like, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And I hung up. And so, yeah, it was, it was intense. And, and I had to feel like I knew, I knew I had a pretty good cover team on this because there was a project team that was working the house. So we had more manpower. Um, and we didn't have tactical, but we just had um, patrol or no, not patrol, sorry, special project team and my dust team. And uh, I had to believe well, if the back door is barricaded, front door is barricaded too, probably I'm thinking like, how does anyone get in? Even if I call 1013, mm -hmm. how does anyone get in here? Do I take an ass kicking before they get in or worse, um, before they can get in to help me? So I just kind of thought like, Hey, this is up to me. I got to get my own ass out of here. And, uh, so yeah, I, I just kind of thought this is it. Like I can't, there's no reasoning with these guys. So I'm just going to have to be calm and start making a move. Like I have no choice. I'm going to get shit kicked one way or another. So I might as well, you know, do it, trying to make a run for it. So um, my idea was basically to just no sudden movements, stay calm, keep chatting with them, keep it light, keep smiling. Uh, and that's what I did. So I, uh, I decided this is it. So I pushed the chair back and, and slowly started standing up, uh, you know, telling them like, and just joking with them, trying to make it seem like their shit wasn't bugging me. And mm -hmm. hey, I'll be back again tomorrow, man. Like, you know, no big deal. And, and, uh, so the first obstacle was the, the kitchen door. So I got to the kitchen door, um, didn't turn my back to them because my, my seat wasn't very far from the door. So I was able to get there within two steps and I opened the kitchen door, still laughing. They're still, they're on me, like they're, they're not getting up, but they're on me verbally. Um, and, uh, so again, I'm just I'm laughing. I, I keep kind of backing my way to onto that landing where the barricade is and and I thought, okay, well, I can't do this without turning my back to them. I just got to make a move. Um, so I just made the move. I turned my back to them and I picked the barricade up and I started standing it up. And that's when I heard the chairs slide from the, from the table. So I thought, oh shit, they're getting up. Mm -hmm. So I uh, stood by the door. I didn't rush because I just didn't want to make anything too panicked. Um, stood at the door, turned the door handle and I'm laughing with them. I'm waving at them like, Hey, no worries, man. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks again. And, uh, as I open the door, they start walking to the landing 
Um, but I felt, I was nervous, but I felt, okay, like at this point now I'm, I've got the freedom to just, if I got a flat out run and anyone that knows me now, I was a better runner than I look now. <laughs> so <laughs> back then I was lighter, faster. Um, so I felt better that, okay, well, at least I'm, I'm at the door. Like I'm at the point where I can make a break if I have to. And they followed me right out into the yard uh, and they just kept chirping me the whole time. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it was never an issue of, um, they were pressing me about being a cop. They just, I think they could see that they were, they were, they thought they were fucking with some mm-hmm. little druggy, right? And, and they're getting to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they, I just, you know, get out into the yard and jump on my bike and pedal about two blocks away and meet up with my cover managers, um, threw my bike in the back of the truck and jump in the truck and. I remember they looked back at me and they said, Jesus, you look like you've seen a ghost. And, and I said, don't ever fucking send me another house again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was probably the last house I did. Um, uh, and it was, it, it was, yeah, like one of those things I put up, there's a few things in, in that you kind of have in your memory bank of, of, or you call them highlights, but I guess some of them are low lights, but whatever, I guess, big experiences. Um, that was in there for sure. That one's, that one's burned in there. It was, uh, it was an interesting scenario. And I, in, you know, it's, you get, there are people that, that criticized me for the way I did things in, in that whole event. And, and I'm cool with that. I, I, I'm not perfect. I don't, you know, I probably could have done some things better. Um, but it, uh, overall it was just, the way that whole situation was handled and the aftermath from it was, it was not a, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't a great moment in UPS history. <laughs> yeah. That, but, um, but yeah, so it was, it was a unique experience that I'm glad I got out of. It was certainly, um, I, I would put it up there as probably the most scared I've ever been in, in the history of my career for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a pretty intense scenario. Oh, yeah. And having dealt with a lot of the gang people, I mean, I've only dealt with them in the overt capacity, full uniform. And um, you just see how some of the people are. And there are some animals out there, yeah. some people that don't care about anything, even themselves. So yeah, they're capable of a lot of uh, a lot of bad things, a lot of harm. So Yeah, and you know, the, the preparation, like I said, wasn't great in that in that event and you know we find out afterwards that the main target was a red alert guy that had shot a guy in the face a couple about a month or two ago on during a drug deal so you hear that afterwards and like okay i had every reason to be scared out of my friggin' mind uh, um but you know again i don't it is what it is um you know there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from that obviously on on how we deal with those situations and how we um, how we manage our people and I, I won't get into it, but it was, it, it, yeah, it, overall, it was just a shitty situation. So, uh, we still got a bit of time left. I do want to kind of cover off with you, uh, your current position and talk about some of the things that patrol deals with now. So some of the, uh, struggles that might be out there, uh, that you might see with some of the members doesn't have to be your own, but also um, if you could talk about some of the successes and maybe we'll kind of end on that note on a, a little bit of a high. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's funny cause as a, as a sergeant uh, on the street, you're, 
as much as you're in touch with the street, I think you're separated a little bit from it. Um, but I, you know, I, I think personally, and I've said this a lot of times to people, is that the, the most important job, in the, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn because I'm a patrol sergeant, but I think the most important job in this service is a patrol sergeant. Um, you know, the, the impact that we have on members' lives and the, and the development of those members um, is, is, is massive. And I think that um, putting the right people in those positions is extremely important. Um, I don't think we always do that. And, and I think cause, because sometimes patrol positions are hard to fill. Um, it's not an easy job. Yeah. Uh, you're the, you're the front line. And, you know, I, I, not just as a supervisor, but I speak, um, as our members on the street, patrol is the face of EPS. Um, so everything that EPS does wrong, patrol bears the brunt of that from, from the public. Um, and that's tough in this day and age for yeah, sure. I agree. Um, you know, and, and we don't recognize our pluses or our positives uh, enough. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, it's, it's always the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, you know, the, the loudest voices. I mean, I think about, in, you know, in our personal lives, if something we go, if we go to a store and something really pissed us off, we're pretty likely to leave a review about how shitty it was and, and how I'll never go back there. Um, but when something really great happens to us, we got some really awesome service. We're not always as anxious to leave that review, right? So when, when our patrol members do some really amazing work, we're not always, I shouldn't say not always, I just think in general, we're not quick enough or, or um, we don't do enough to recognize that. Um, and that's unfortunate, you know, the, watching the patrol members in the last couple of years going through everything they've gone through with COVID, the whole defund the police movement, you know, it's, uh, like I said earlier, uh, social media is, it's an amazing tool. Uh, you know, I, I love to use it. I love to stay in touch with friends across the world. Um, but it's the downfall of our society. It mm. really is. Um, and, and our members take a shit kicking um, in, in social media. Uh, and so <clears throat> it's extremely difficult to be a police officer these days. Uh, I look back, you know, I'm in my 24th year. Uh, and I, I, I look back and say, I've asked, a couple of people ask me, would you start over? It's not a chance in hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the difference being is that the, the young people starting, uh, now this is their baseline. They know kind of what they're getting into. They know the environment, they know how people think and treat police. And so they're starting at this level, but I didn't start here it got to this level and I'm like, Jesus, I couldn't do 25 years of this shit. Mm. And so I give credit to the young people that still want to do this job. It's not an easy time to be a police officer. And do it for the right reasons. Yep. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, I mean, kudos to them. Um, you know, I think that uh, I just really feel like we don't, and I don't know what the answer is, to be honest with you. How do we, how do we treat our patrol members better? How do we recognize them better? You know, the EPA does the patrol awards trying to recognize the good work that members do. But I've been on that committee. I've been, and I've been out on the street when the, the process is running. And I don't see the buy-in uh, from the members. I don't mm. think it's really enough for them. Like I, I think a lot of people still think it's a popularity contest or things like that. And so 
it's it's a wonderful gesture and, and I applaud the EPA for doing it. Um, and you got to start somewhere. But I just, I don't think that's the answer. I don't think, you know, when I was on the EPA and I would go and talk to uh, parades about um, what can we do to, to better incentivize patrol. And the same thing I kept hearing over and over and over again is, is that it's not about the money. Like, you know, the patrol pay is nice. And, you know, that was the first thing we'd always ask is, well, what if we got, you know, we tried to bargain for a higher patrol premium? Nope, it's not the money. It's not the money. Um, but I couldn't get an answer of what it was. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what that answer is. I think um, a lot of it is uh, kind of going back to some of your earlier points. The camaraderie is a huge piece of it mm-hmm. for people. When you leave patrol, the camaraderie is not the same and the relationships that you have with people are very different. So I think that's a huge aspect of it. Yeah. You know, I, I think, and I, I'm just speaking from my own experience. I'm not here to kind of say I'm doing it right. Um, but I think, you know, I, for me, it's, it's my team is everything. Um, so their happiness, like if I can make them happy, um, feel fulfilled in their career, they're going to perform. Uh, and so, you know, for, I always like to organize um, squad events. I always like to include, you know, as much as possible, include spouses because I want spouses to feel like they're a part of the team. I don't want them hearing a bunch of names at home but have no idea who they are or recognize faces. It's a, um, you know, little things like that to just try and, and make it feel like it's more than just I'm coming to work with these people. Um, you know, I, I want everybody to be able to work with everybody. And if there's any, you know, ever little um, conflicts within the squad, you try and manage those quickly and effectively. And, um, you know, we have so much to deal with outside um, of the service or within the service as well from like people crapping on us from the public and then the service crapping on us because they feel like we're not doing the job they want us to do. And it's just, you, you want to feel like you have this protective bubble. Um, and as long as you're within your squad environment, you're safe um, and you're happy and you're comfortable. And, as long as we can kind of do our job and operate within that protective bubble, everything else will look after itself. And so, you know, as a boss, you just want to try and be that, be that protective bubble, try and insulate them from the bullshit coming from the public or the bullshit coming from management. So, it's like having your own kids. Yeah. It is. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, you know, I've got 12 kids at work and three kids at home. And it's, it's, it's a lot for sure, especially, you know, I keep telling people at my age, um, the, the shift work is making me tired, uh, for sure. But, you know, it's as much as I, I think probably almost monthly, I think about what kind of job could I do that gets me away from shift work? Um, but I have such a fierce loyalty to my team that I couldn't even consider doing something else. I feel like I can't let them down. I can't leave and I don't want to disrupt their protective bubble. Well, I think that's, uh, that's a good place to wrap. Uh, Unless you got something else you want to go on about right now. I think uh, I think you brought up some really good points, um, especially talking about the mental health aspect to this job. It is a very difficult job. People who don't do this or don't do, we'll say, anything uh, that kind of touches on this realm. So we're looking at uh, fire, EMS, uh, military, similar jobs that deal with people on the day-to-day at their worst. Um the outside public is 
doesn't get that. So yeah. um, I think you did a great job of talking about some of the struggles that people can have and that you have had. And um, it's, it's a very interesting topic that not a lot of people do kind of go on a, and on these programs and talk about. So I appreciate you being here and uh, we'll have to have you on again. Yeah, you know what, I, I will say that we touched a little bit on mental health and um, I'd love to come back and, and talk a little bit more about that. I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, I've written a couple articles in the AFPA, like uh, Alberta Police Federation magazine, uh, about my personal struggles. Um, I, you know, uh, if you guys are interested, I would love to go over that um, because I feel it's not just for me to kind of sit here and say, you know, everyone listen to me and, and feel bad for me. It's, it's basically, I, I want people to understand that if they hear it coming from from me as here's my story and here's what I went through and here's how I tried to hide certain things. They can rec- maybe see some similarities in there and make them recognize, okay, like, look, he went through that and these are some of the things that happened to him and he's still, you know, a quote unquote productive member of EPS. So I, for me, it's, it's all about giving people hope because I, I went through a time where I had none. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. No, I appreciate that. So uh, we'll wrap it up here cool. and uh, we'll talk again. Sounds good. Thanks, buddy.